Today we're starting a, a series on the book of Nehemiah, which is one of Pastor Michael's favorite books in the Bible. One of my uh, it's not, it's not the, the book of James, which is probably your favorite book, correct? New Testament. New Testament. But Old Testament, he really likes the book of Nehemiah. So I do. It is all yours. Thanks, buddy. All right. And hopefully the microphone stays on for if you. If it doesn't, I can he'll just you. He'll just shout. <laughs> I, All right. I started preaching in Africa, and if we had like three hours of power in a day, we praise God. So what we would do is one of the usher's jobs before church is he would make sure that there was like uh, four or five bucks worth of gasoline in the generator. And then if the power went out, when the power went out, not if, when the power would go out, everybody would just keep clapping. And we knew it was going to come out because the lights would start flickering. And so we knew it's like, okay, the city's turning it off, especially in the dry season. And then uh, we would see two ushers sprint outside and start pulling on the generator to get it running. Once it ran, they'd hit a big switch and then all the power would go back on and they didn't even lose a beat in the song. They were very good at it. And then I got stressed because I always wanted to know if we had enough gas in the generator. So... There's different problems in different places. We're going to be talking about the book of Nehemiah for three weeks. So uh, one thing that's really cool uh, that Pastor Sherry was able to get running is in Uversion, which is a lot of the Bible apps that we use in our phones, Uversion now has a churches near me. And so if you go and look, you will see one church in Windsor, and that is Inspiration 9 Church. And you're welcome to uh, join that. At the time of my looking at it last night, there was a couple in Kingsville and there's one in Windsor. Um, now that I said it, there's gonna be 27 in Windsor tomorrow. Uh, but, <laughs> but go on there and feel free to join us because we're gonna be putting in different types of Nehemiah-focused plans over the next month inside uh, Uversion so you can study with us. Um, so the book of Nehemiah um, is actually the most recent events uh, from the Old Testament. So what we call the Nehemiah, we call it one of the history books. So the historical books in the Old Testament are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd uh, uh, Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and then there's Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Now Esther was the most recently written from the Old Testament. However, the events predate Nehemiah. So I say all that because I really want to set the context for the things that we're going to do for the next three weeks. So what we have to understand here is that in the land of Judah, when Jerusalem was built, it was built with the large temple. It was built with the great walls. Um, it, was, it, had, it was the holy land. It still is the holy land, but it was the holy land for the Jews. Now, what happened was we see that the, the, the Jewish people had gone into uh, rebellion against God again, okay? <laughs> if you've ever been there, if you've read it, you'll see a theme, okay? And what we see is that there was a new king named Zedekiah, and he had Jeremiah as prophet. Now, the Bible tells us, they call, uh, scholars call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Why? Because he had to have Zedekiah as a king when he was the prophet, and Zedekiah didn't listen to him. And so what ended up happening is that Jerusalem was destroyed. They call it the Siege of Jerusalem. And uh, this is all historically factual. You can go through both the Bible and you can go through all your extra historical uh, curriculars. You'll see everything. You'll see the first destruction 
of Jerusalem was done by uh, when Nebuchadnezzar was in control. And essentially, everybody in Jerusalem, they took off, and if they were captured, most of them went in exile to Babylon, and the remainders would have went into the areas around, okay? Now, what we see fast forward is that the Jewish people have been living in Babylon, they've been living in a foreign land, and to the point where we even see that they've started to come up into the ranks, okay? You can think of stories of Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, who had they been, uh, had been taken out from the people and into the king's court, okay? So what you'll see is that the Jewish people had been removed from Jerusalem, Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple had been destroyed, and the Jewish people have come out. Now, there's prophecy from Jeremiah which says that when, the ba when Babylon would be defeated, the exile of the Jews would be completed, okay? And we, why is that important is that what happened was there was a guy named King Cyrus who comes on years later. Now, King Cyrus is actually known historically as the first great humanitarian king. Uh, they actually found histor historical evidence um, in Iraq or Iran, one of those places where when they had found, um, they actually found scrolls from King Cyrus's empire, which was all about how to treat captured people and how to treat people who you've conquered. And so they called him, you know, one of the great uh, humanitarian kings. Now, why do I say that? Because King Cyrus was the one who announced that the Jews could go back to Jerusalem. And now what we see in the Old Testament is we see that there's three waves of Jews going back to Jerusalem. Now you might say, well, how come they didn't just all go back at once? And the reason is, is because if you've got it made pretty good in Babylon and you've kind of made it and that's your home and that's where you grew up and that's where your job is and, and you're, you're in one of the greatest cities in the world at the time and then you get told that you're allowed to go back to where you were a ref, where, where you would basically be a refugee in your own land where everything is destroyed. Second Kings 25 says that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylon, Babylonians came into Jerusalem, destroyed the walls, destroyed the temple and destroyed every great house in Jerusalem. They destroyed it completely. Now, why is that important? Is that Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back. And what's really interesting here is that some people want to know why did Cyrus let people go back. Now, we see in the words of um, in, Ezra verse, in Ezra chapter 1. So Ezra and Nehemiah, the two books, give us the entire description of the three waves of return back to Jerusalem. So in Ezra 1, verse 2, 3, it says, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. This is written by King Cyrus, the king of Persia who's not even Jewish, who defeated Babylon, defeated the Babylonian army. He, he, the, um, hist history tells us that Cyrus went on to conquer over 15 nations, one of the greatest uh, 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 empires at the time with the Persian Empire from King Cyrus the Great. Now, what's really crazy to me is I started studying, why did Cyrus let the Jews go? <laughs> It doesn't make sense. I mean, we look at Exodus when, when the Jews were trying to come out of Egypt, and we see great struggle, and the Pharaoh had to basically wiped out his entire army and his entire family, and they finally got away. And this King Cyrus decides that he is going to release the Jews, to let them go back to Jerusalem, to the point where he even financed this, the first original expedition back to Jerusalem. Now, I believe it's because 
Who was in the courts in, ba in Babylon when King Cyrus became the king? The prophet Daniel was served under King Cyrus at that time. Now, what's very interesting is that prophet Daniel would have had the scrolls of the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah in his possession because that's how the prophets would write down the scrolls and it would go with the Jewish people. So when King Cyrus says to fulfill, um, he goes on later to say that he's fulfilling the prophecy of Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah said when Babylon is defeated that the Jews would be able to return. So who told him that? Well, probably Daniel, but I really started thinking about it. I said, well, you know, anybody could say to the king, you know, you won Babylon and our prophecies say that when Babylon goes down, we get to go home. <laughs> and what's the king going to say? Sure it does, right? But I think that probably what Daniel did is he pulled out the scrolls from Isaiah 44, where, the, where Isaiah wrote down, who says of Cyrus that he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Or maybe it was in the very next chapter when Isaiah prophesied, thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I've grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed, that I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you might know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who called you by name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. Isaiah wrote that 150 years before Cyrus was born. He says to Cyrus, and he starts talking about the destruction of, of he was telling, he was prophesying 150 years before Cyrus was born that, Isaiah, that, that, that Cyrus would call out the rebuilding of the temple when the temple was still built. The temple hadn't been destroyed and Isaiah was prophesying that Cyrus, who doesn't know him, that Cyrus would subdue nations, that he would go and he would be the one to say Jerusalem would be rebuilt, that the temple would be, the foundations would be rebuilt. Why is that important? Well, because, you know, historians really had a hard time with these two chapters. And what they said is, well, what must have happened is that the Jewish people much later on added Cyrus into the prophecies to give us a much better story, which was really convenient for them to say because it doesn't make sense that a prophet Isaiah would be calling out a king 150 years before he was born who was not even of the Jewish people, telling him to, that he would be the one to, to rebuild the foundation of the temple and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem before Jerusalem was even destroyed and while the temple was still standing. It doesn't make any sense. And so the historians for the longest time said, well, that was added on, which was basically the understanding of historians who were anti-biblical up until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and they found an entire complete uh, uh, prophecies and scrolls of Isaiah in the completion that pre date Cyrus that when you look at it, it still says Cyrus on the paper. Are you with me? Why do you study and you nerd out in the Old Testament all the time? Because prophecies in the Old Testament were being completed in, in, within the Old Testament that are mind-boggling to historians that they don't actually have an answer. They, all the answer is, is that it must have happened because we can't understand how this couldn't have happened when everything is predated. Now, why am I saying all of this? It's because Cyrus goes and he sees scrolls from Isaiah which say, Cyrus, I'm calling you. And he says, did you write this? He says, this was written 150 
50 years before you were born. It talks about, it says that you will go break through the doors of bronze. Now, when you look in 2 Kings 25, what you see is that the city of Babylon is called the city of bronze. To, or sorry, this, the, the city of Jerusalem was full of bronze. And it says the Babylonians destroyed the gates of bronze from Jerusalem. And where did they bring the bronze? They brought the bronze to Babylon. And so when Cyrus went and defeated Babylon, it says that they broke through the gates and they had all of the bronze in Babylon. And so he's looking going, it says that I'm going to destroy a kingdom full of bronze. Well, he destroyed Babylon, which was the city of bronze, okay? All right, guys, I'm just, all right, we're really going deep here. So what happens? Cyrus realizes, I got 150 years ago, there was prophecies telling me, I got to let you guys go or else, because I'm going to get treasure and I'm going to subdue nations and I'm going to be made great because your God told me it's true and everything else makes sense. And I just defeated Babylon. And now Jeremiah said that after Babylon is defeated, that the Jews can go home. So what does he do? He goes, you can go home and I'm going to give you a whole bunch of money and treasure and everything to finance it and he's the one who decrees that you'll go back and build, start the foundation of your temple are you with me so Jerusalem so the Jews returned in three ways we see the first return was with Zerubbabel and he was given the commission by uh, a King Cyrus from Babylon and this was the first wave this is Ezra 1 to 6 and the main thing they did is they went back they started fresh and the first thing that they did is they laid the foundation to start building the second temple, okay? Ezra 7, through the rest of Ezra, we see it pick up with the second wave, which is by Ezra, who is the high priest, who realizes there's a major issue with the Levites, because a lot of Levites have gone against the covenant. Some Levites don't want to go back to Jerusalem. They don't want to go back to the Holy Land. They want to stay in Babylon. And what we see is that Ezra takes a second group back to Jerusalem, where he brings great uh, a, a, a spiritual cleansing and a renewed covenant of the Levites back to the covenant that they had with God. And he basically, you can take the, the Jew out of Babylon, but you can't take the Babylon out of the Jew up until Ezra goes there and says, nope, you guys aren't in Babylon anymore. We got to start living the way uh, God wants his holy people to live. Amen. Now, what we see is the third wave is Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah, the book was written by Nehemiah himself. So it's an awesome adventure story written in the hand of the person who lived it. It was only maybe a 14 or 15 year span of time, but we know historically that he started to write it almost as soon as the events were completed, okay? And so what we see is that Nehemiah is the third leader of the third wave of the return to Zion for the Jewish people out of Babylon. By this point in time, King Cyrus is long dead, but the decree that the Jews were no longer an enslaved people and could go back had stood completely, okay? So now what we see is that, uh, uh, so it says the events of the book happened around 444 BC, uh, and then he wrote the account from his own book shortly thereafter. We don't know a lot about Nehemiah's background, but we do know that Nehemiah was described as the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. The king Artaxerxes, he called himself the king of kings in Persia. He was a, was a, a king over a, a significant region of, of Persia. And what's really interesting is that when you look at a cupbearer, now firstly, 
uh, Artaxerxes is Persian and Nehemiah is Jewish. And so something I found really interesting is that um, one way to really work with people that you've conquered is to allow them to have positions in their household. But also what that means is that they have to be of a very high level of trust. And you also have to treat their people good because the cupbearer was the person who poured the wine. And if you're going to take out the king, what's the easiest way to do that? Spoil the McDonald's, right? Enjoy, right? How's it taste? And then run, right? So, so Nehemiah was a Jew who was in Babylon after the first, he still, his family would have still been there. The second goes back, his family's still there. Now Nehemiah's grown. He's serving under a new Persian king. He is the cupbearer. He would have been the most trusted person probably in the life of King Artaxerxes. So, you know, you, and uh, the reason I really like the story of Nehemiah is that he's kind of a cupbearer. He's, he's like a really highly trusted government employee, really, if you think about it, okay? Like, what do I mean? Well, you've got Esther, but she kind of became the queen, right? And the Bible tells us that, that the king had great love for Esther, that he loved her above all of the others, right? And then you have, you know, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, who you know as Balthazar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What happens? It says that they were taken out and placed into a high level of favor inside the courts of the kings. They were members of the king court. Even the first person who led the first charge, Zerubbabel, his Babylonian name actually refers to the fact that he would have been of royalty, if you actually look even in 2 Kings 25, when it describes the destruction of Babylon, before the chapter's even done, you see that one of the kings who is in an exile of Israel 37 years, uh, late, uh, 37 years into the exile, he actually gets pulled out of prison, and the king at that time makes him a king above kings, even though he's an exiled king of Judah. So even when the Jewish people had lost Jerusalem and are in Babylon, they are still walking in the favor of God. Daniel is being placed into a high level of, of position within a foreign kingdom. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are still walking with the fourth man in the fire. Are you with me? So, Nehemiah, so, so even the people going back and leaving Babylon to go back to their rubble to rebuild God's place for God's people are getting financed by the world to go do something that God prophesied. Why? Because the Bible says that he can, he can make the bad things turn around for the good. So he can still take your rebellion that led you into exile and he can still be with you when you're an exiled Jew living in an ungodly forsaken place where you're going through pits and the lions, you're going into the fiery furnace, you're living in Babylon, you don't have a home, you don't have a people, you don't have a covenant. And yet in all of that times, God is still with these people walking through their time in exile, even though they got themselves in exile because of their consistent disobedience and rebellion and even even when they continually blew it, God continued to be with them. Why? Because God doesn't break his promises. And when he said, I'm making a covenant for you, for your people and their people, I'm going to walk with you. Why? Because when he said, I'm the father, I'm the, I'm the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, they go, well, those are my people. But yeah, because I made a covenant with you that you would be my people. So even when you screw up and you go to the wrong places, you might be in the wrong places, but I can still make the right time because I'm sovereign in all these situations. Are you with me? So I'm excited to, I want to give you the context because for three weeks we're going to be talking about Nehemiah, but you need to understand that these people have been living and now they're, they're now coming out of, out of the 
punishments of rebellion that they've been in, and they're looking at what they used to have. You know, and even in Ezra, Ezra, when it talks about that they rebuilt the second temple, it says that there was laughter and that there was tears. Because the people who remembered what was there were weeping because of what they lost. While the people who didn't know what was there were rejoicing because it was a promise and knew that God was still there for them. Isn't it interesting how sometimes God can speak to people that he can send the same thing and tell two people two different things and mean the same thing. It's just interesting to me. So you've got, so anyways, so you've got all of these Jewish people who have been brought into the highest levels of Babylon and now you've got Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah being the trusted cupbearer of the king. My message today is called Answering the Call. You know, I really think about when, when Nehemiah was sitting there. Listen, if he's the cupbearer of the king, the king has got his eyes on him. He wants to make sure he's never having a bad day. Why? Because if that guy's serving your wine and you talked to him poorly that night before, you might be questioning whether or not you want to drink the wine the next day. Are you with me? There's like, there's, what's that thing they always say? There's, there's two people you want to be nice to, the guy who runs your money and the guy who cooks your food, right? Okay, maybe that's just my motto. I don't know. But if, trust me, I'm, I am very nice at restaurants. Like I, my, I don't have grace for a lot of things, but bad waitressing, I do because I know what they can do to me. You with me? I'm just, my, my cup runneth over with patience in restaurants. I just, whatever, I'm either not eating it or I will wait till tomorrow. I'm just so Canadian. So what we see in Nehemiah 1, verse 1 to 4, we're just going to read this together. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped. He's talking about what happened with the last two groups of people who've gone over back to Jerusalem. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now what's really interesting is that Nehemiah being in the comfort and the lavish of a Persian royalty, living in was, as one of the most trusted advisors to a king of kings, as he called himself, the King Artaxerxes of Persia, that in that time, he's sitting there asking about what's going on with his people in a land far off. In a land that he probably never even had gone to before. A land that he didn't know about when it was a holy city. He had grown up in Babylon for all of that time, living in the highest levels of courts in Babylon. And he's talking to people who are coming back from Jerusalem and saying, tell me about the holy land and the people there. Tell me about my people. And the guy said, it's not looking good. The temple's there but the people are in trouble. They're completely vulnerable. They're defenseless. They're not allied with the people around them. We know this to be true. They're hanging on by a thread. And what did he do? He said, well, it's gonna have to do, someone's gonna have to do something about it. I got a job here. Or did he say, he wept and he prayed because he was moved so intensely by the thing that was right in front of him. And I wonder why he wept and mourned. I wonder if he wept and mourned because he felt bad that he's been living in Babylon when his people are suffering, or if he wept and mourned because he was 
confronted with a decision which was gonna be really difficult to make, or maybe he wept and mourned because he didn't understand what God was trying to do or what should he do in that situation. I believe that answering the call starts with the question of whether we have apathy or whether we have empathy. And the thing about apathy is that apathy says, it's too bad, so sad, but what can I do about it? And I believe that as Christians, especially in the Western world, it's so easy for us to become so apathetic because what happens is, is that we greatly increase the value and the, and the impact of the little things inside of our life. That when we see big things, sometimes we don't see the big things for what they are because we've made the little things in our life way bigger than what they should have been. Are you with me? And so what happens is we become apathetic because we think, well, what can I do? I, I was in Toronto um, a little while ago and I saw a guy and he was, he was on the side of the street and he was walking with his bucket asking for money. Now, can I be honest with you? My first instinct is, looks like he could get a job. That's honestly, that's my first thing. I'm like, he's able-bodied, he's walking, he's young, he doesn't have a bunch of legs blown off. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm a realist when I see, if I see somebody, you know, no arms, no legs, really suffering, I sit there, I'm like, man, I like, my heart breaks. But when I see a person where, when I'm just being honest with you, when I see it with my two eyes and I go, it looks like you could hang drywall. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what's going on, but that's the first thing that my brain thinks. And I remember I was sitting there and, 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 I, and I just, I remember God said to me, well, you, you can think whatever makes you comfortable. And I remember I had five bucks in my cash, in my wallet. I never carry cash. I actually, I was reminded I had money in my wallet at that moment. I never have cash on me. I'm the worst. I always just plastic everything. And I said, I gave him five bucks. And I remember as soon as I drove away, I started thinking about him like, well, I wonder what that five bucks is going to go towards. I wonder what that's going to whatever, you know. Uh, you know and, and there's no reason for me to think that other than my own general apathy because I was telling myself why I didn't need to do anything. Maybe he did. But God had put into my heart in that moment a certain level of empathy where all of a sudden I realized I don't know what he's going through that day, but if I was in that position, this would be a real blessing to me. And now I can either just trust God with what I've done in that moment, or I can be apathetic and just tell myself about why I didn't do anything at all. And honestly, the funny thing is, is that we get way more comfortable in apathy because we don't have to roll the window down. We don't have to reach into our wallet. We don't have to talk to somebody we don't know. We don't have to trust the ground that we just threw some seed into because we don't see it anymore. And we probably never will. But God sees. My first point in answering the call is, do you have a spirit of apathy in your life or empathy? Apathy will always push you towards luxury. But as Christians, we do not have the luxury to be apathetic in this lost and dying world. Apathy is a luxury for the atheist because they can eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow they die. But you and I as believers in the church do not have the luxury or the convenience to be apathetic to the problems of this world. Because Jesus was not apathetic to the failure and the sin and the death that was coming to each one of us. If Jesus was apathetic to us, he never would have left the throne. How many times is it hard for us to leave the throne room of a king of kings in Babylon when Jesus left the throne room of the king of kings in heaven to come down to this earth? Why? Because he was not apathetic to our suffering, but he was empathetic that we have a high priest that we can relate to who came down, who lived this life, who lived it with no wrong, and he died and was rose again on the third day, who knows our suffering and knows our tribulation, and he is not apathetic to it, but he empathizes with us because he was both God and man in this lifetime. Are you with me? 
you will never be able to answer the call if you live a life of apathy because you'll never pick up the phone. James 4.17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Apathy is the most uh, uh, destructive sin that I think a lot of us live with and we don't repent of it because we think that it's, uh, uh, we don't see the, we, we make people an inconvenience. And I think that the worst thing that we can do in this lifetime is make people an inconvenient thing. Because Jesus could have left, he, it was inconvenient for Christ. And he did a lot more than we are doing. <laughs> and then Isaiah 1 says what? Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Learn, seek, correct, bring, plead. These are all action verbs that require something of you. My first point is, as a church, as a household family, as a son and daughter of God, do we have a spirit of empathy operating in our life that is, that is it, or are, have we so covered our, our, have we made the small things in our life so big that everything that really matters in this lifetime becomes inconvenience to what we're trying to do? I hope not. My second point is that Nehemiah made God's issue his issue. You know, Jerusalem was called the holy city for, his pe for God's people, and it was destroyed. Can I be honest with you? Nehemiah didn't need a new city. He didn't need a new house. He didn't need a new job. He didn't need a new place to live. Nehemiah had it made in the shade in Persia, right? He was, he was living good. But that wasn't what God wanted. And what I think is really interesting is that Nehemiah knew that God loved Jerusalem and loved his people, that Nehemiah made God's concern his concern. That's one of the biggest things that I think that I remind myself. In order to operate a spirit of empathy, we used to put them on our bracelets back in the 90s and the 2000s. What would Jesus do? And we really kind of made it a joke. And we always made everything, what would Jesus do, be about sin. You're like, oh, what are you watching? What would Jesus do? I can't watch this show anymore. But what about like the moments when someone is inconvenient or the moments when someone needs something from us or the moments when we have the ability and the option to look away? How many times do we think to ourselves, what would Jesus do in this situation? We made what would Jesus do this level of condemnation or this level of trying to, to, to continually not sin. But I wonder, the Bible, James says that knowing the right thing to do and not doing it, that is a sin. Does your heart break for people if Christ's heart would break for those people? In Luke 7, there was a widow whose son had died. The Bible says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. In Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, and seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. 
In Matthew 15, 32, and Jesus called his disciples and said, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat and I don't want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. Jesus, the son of God, is healing people. He's laying the hands on the sick. He's telling people to recover. He's calling people out of the caves, but he has concern that people didn't eat enough food before they walk home. How inconvenient to be worried about people having enough food to walk back when you are going from place to place, laying your hands on the sick, uh, uh, you know, bringing people back to life, raising people up, you know, uh, cleansing the lepers, you know, doing all these, casting out demons, doing all these things, and Jesus has compassion for the people that they might not have had enough food. You know, sometimes we really look at the big spiritual things, and we say, I'm gonna be concerned with the biggest spiritual things. I'm gonna be concerned with the salvation. I'm gonna be concerned with the spirit. I'm gonna be concerned with this. I'm gonna be concerned with that. And guess what? Jesus was too, but you know what else he was concerned with? If they had enough food that day. Because Nehemiah had a concern that his people were hanging on by a thread. And he's sitting there giving wine to the kings, eating the food of the kings, living in the bed of the kings. And he realizes that there's something going on somewhere else that is a major concern to God. And he had the ability in that moment to go, well, God's going to have to do something. Or he could have said, my heart is breaking for what God's heart is breaking for. And I really feel like one of the biggest things, the Bible says, blessed are they who are broken in spirit. What does broken in spirit mean? It doesn't mean your spirit's broken. It means that you feel the breaking of the spirit of God when you see the things happening in the world which cause, the Bible says, not to grieve the spirit. The only way to make the grieve the spirit is to do something because the spirit of God is weeping for what is happening. You can't grieve someone if they don't give a rip about you. If I don't know you, I don't like you, I don't whatever, and you do something, you mean nothing to me. I'm not, it's, it is what it is. You're not gonna, but if my wife comes to me, my kids come to me, if my best friend comes to me, my mom comes to me, and they say, da, 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 I'm gonna grieve. Now, how about when we look at people and we realize how much God loves those people and we see the problems, we see the suffering, we see the addiction, we see the difficulty, we see the, what might have been called to us an inconvenience, and instead in that time, we see something and all of a sudden we are broken-spirited because we feel what the Spirit feels when it sees something happening to God's chosen people. The ones that he sent his son to die for, he sees that person crying alone on the bench because they just got evicted. Sitting in, in, in destruction because they don't know what else to do. Looking at maid services because they can't keep a job and they figure it's better if they ask the government to help them kill themselves than maybe for Jesus to come into their life and remind them about how he died for their sins so that they might be able to live. The biggest destruction in this world right now is that we are minimizing the value of people and we don't realize how much it grieves the spirit when the baby is killed in utero. We don't know how much it grieves the spirit when a person says, God's given up on me and I've given up on myself. We don't know how much it grieves the spirit when we see people who are out without a church, out without a connection, out without a family, out with, walking alone. They go, you, me, and Dupree, we're going to figure it out ourselves. We don't know how much it grieves the spirit. I would ask 
ask you, friend, I would ask you, family, to ask the Lord to put a broken spirit inside of you that we might see people as Jesus see people. That It's not just people that we want to lay our hands on for them to sick, but it's people that we want them to know that we don't even want them to be hungry on their walk home. Are you with me? Nehemiah left the throne room to be in the rubble because God's heart was broken for what had happened to Jerusalem. And he couldn't live in the throne room of the world one more day if he knew that God's chosen people, that God's chosen city, that God's covenant was breaking in front of the world. He felt the grieving of the spirit in that moment. And the wine doesn't taste as good. The food doesn't taste as good. And you don't sleep as good. And the bed doesn't feel as comfortable. You start to hate everything. And what was apathy and what was inconvenience becomes the thing that stops you from being able to do anything of value in your lifetime because it was too inconvenient to feel the grieving of the people around you. Are you with me? My first point, answering the call, is it starts with a spirit of empathy for people. Seeing people as Christ sees people. My second point is moving with compassion and recognizing that we need to make God's issues our issue. It's very easy for us to be apathetic to all of the things that are happening in the world. But if God was against it, then we should be against it. And if God is for it, then we should be for it. And if God loves people, then we should love people. And if God forgives people, then we should forgive people. It's very simple. What does the Bible say? Fear God and, do, and, and, do, and follow his commandments. It's so simple. My last point is that he left a high place to serve in the low place. You know, in Nehemiah 2, verse 1 to 2, it says, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. You understand that he had the eyes of the Persian king of one of the greatest empires at the time. And the king knew Artaxerxes was sad. Imagine the greatest number one world leader in the world. And you're just serving him every day. And one day he walks in and goes, what's wrong? He paused his entire empire because there was a person in front of him. And he knew something was off. Knew something was wrong. Can you talk about how much favor a person has when the king of kings in the, world, in, the, in the earth, when one of the greatest leaders will stop the entire train to ask one of his employees if he's okay? And it says, he told the king of what was hurting in his heart, of what was happening to his people, and his response was, well, how long are you going to be gone for? How long do I have to give you to go do what you need to do? How much money do I have to give you to be able to do that kind of thing? How much can I give you and I think to myself, how good Nehemiah must have had it <laughs> to know that the king is concerned about whether he was having a good day or a bad day. How good did Nehemiah have it? And yet it says that Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem. Went, I shouldn't even say went back because it was never from there. He went to Jerusalem. He brought people. He brought money from the government. And he went and he threw himself into a fiery rubble pit. Because of what God had put in his heart. Why? Because he had a spirit of empathy. Which forced him to not be comfortable anymore. In his apathy. 
Because he has forced out of the throne room by God's calling. Because he made God's issue his issue. And because of that, he went face first into the destruction. And you're going to learn more about how bad it was next week. <laughs> when Pastor Brian and Pastor Sherry talk about what he had to deal with when he got there. Spoiler alert, not great days. I imagine you're all going to start studying greatly and it's not a long book. So you're going to get ahead of us. You should get ahead of us. <laughs> Nehemiah had the attention of a king, but he left the palace to answer the calling of God. 1 Peter 4 verse 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. What was the same way of thinking? Is that even when Christ suffered, he loved even when Christ suffered, he forgave. Do you know, sometimes we can think to ourselves, if God wanted me and he called me, then I would be in the throne room. Oftentimes, the exact opposite is true. That the fact that you're in the destruction and the rubble and the disaster and the hard times and you left the good times, sometimes the fact that you're surrounded by chaos is the reason that God called you. Maybe he didn't leave you in the throne room because he needed you in the chaos. Maybe the only reason why you have a calling is because God knew that you were the person to go into the chaos to fulfill his will and his destiny for your life. And the apathy that is inside of you might keep you comfortable, but might snatch you away from doing what God has called you to do. Maybe. Matthew 25, 35 to 40 says, Jesus is talking, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Inconvenient, I was 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 inconvenient. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or when were you thirsty and we gave you drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in person and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Christ left the throne room. Christ left the highest of high places to come to serve in the lowest of low places. Why? That we might do the same thing. Answering the call. There is an empathy that should move you to action. Our Father in heaven whom we identify with. Do you have the compassion for others that God has the compassion for you? And our willingness to leave the comfort to do the hard things. You know what? You don't have to leave the throne room. You don't have to leave the palace. You don't have to roll your window down. You don't have to feed somebody. You don't have to call somebody. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything, but you might be missing everything. You might be missing the whole plot. You might be missing the entire thing. The Bible says, well done, my good and faithful servant. It doesn't say, well done, my good and faithful leader my good and faithful king, my good and faithful did all of the right things at all the right times, but never listened to me. The Bible talks about that there are some people who are going to get into heaven by the skin of their teeth. They're going to make it, but just barely. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to get to heaven and say, you, you didn't do what I asked, but you did what I, I commanded, but you missed it, man. 
you really missed it. The Bible talks about that there is a judgment seat of Christ. Do you know what the judgment seat of Christ is? It's not for the unbeliever, it's for the believer. Now, I'm not trying to do this to scare people into works. I'm not trying to scare people into action. But what I am trying to do is to relay to you the importance of living a life that matters. And Nehemiah could have lived in the throne room. He could have lived for himself, but we never would have had a book about it. We never would have had a third wave under his watch. We don't know if he would have got the walls built. We don't know what would have happened if he would have stayed there. But I do know what would have happened if he would have stayed there. Is he would have lived and he would have died and it, nothing would have mattered for him. But because he picked up the phone, because the empathy was in his spirit, because his spirit grieved for the things that grieved the Lord, because of that, he had to get out of the throne room. He had to get out of the place of exaltation. He had to get out of the place of being served and throw himself into the destruction and the rubble and the chaos of a hurting people in a hurting place, in a hurting time, in a hurting land with whatever he had. I don't know if I'm the person to do this. I'm just the cupbearer to a king. I'm just good at pouring wine and and making good side talk and telling a guy how nice he looks every day. And now I'm going over to become a governor of Jerusalem to deal with a people I don't know, to deal with problems I'm not aware of, to go and throw myself into the mud and the miry clay. Why? Because he couldn't help it. Jeremiah says, how can I say I won't release the things that are inside of me because there is a burning fire inside of me that if I don't let it out, I'll burn up. I can't not be empathetic for somebody. I can't not be grieved if it grieves God. I cannot be upset when I see something that upsets God. I can't help it. It might be inconvenient to me. It might be inconvenient to my bank account. It might be inconvenient to the people around me. But I don't want to live and die and be told good enough. I want to be told well done. Isaiah 6 verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, I'm right here. Send me. Not, I don't know. Ask somebody else. Ask somebody with the qualifications. Ask somebody who's done this before. Ask somebody who's related to somebody. Ask somebody who speaks better than I do. Ask somebody who walks better than I do. Ask somebody who's younger than me. Ask somebody who's taller than me. Ask somebody who's older than me. Ask a guy. Ask a girl. I don't know who you got to ask. You got to ask somebody. And maybe God's saying, I'm asking you because I think you're the person to do the thing. Are you willing to embrace the inconvenience of this life to tell people about the love of Jesus? Are you willing to embrace the inconveniences of this life to throw yourself into the hard places because there is people that need God and it might be you who is the one to tell them about it? Or do we want to live in the throne rooms of, of, of apathy and in the palaces of, of self-righteousness and, and in the castles of not my problem, not my issue? And, you know, do we want to live there? Because I'll tell you what, the lobster starts to taste like soap and the beds stop being comfortable and the king starts looking stupid. And you start hating the nice shoes. You start hating the nice things. Why? Because you've taken yourself out of the will of God to live in the will of yourself. And you realize that yourself is going to lead you somewhere that you're not going to be proud of at the end of the time. Choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. As for I and I in church, we're going to serve the Lord. As for the church in Canada, we're going to serve the Lord. As for the church in 2023, we're going to serve the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for this people. I thank you for this time that you've allowed us to live in. God, we repent for times where the phone has been ringing. We repent for the times when the door has been knocking. We repent for the times when the hand has been out. We repent for the times where someone's been sitting alone and you know something's off. We repent for the times where we could have done something, but we chose to not. 
Lord, we repent of that because your word says that that is sin. And we don't want that type of sin to exist in our life. That sin of comfort and that sin of self-righteousness and that sin of I don't need to do anything and Christ is going to do everything. God, we repent of that. Give us a spirit of empathy for the people who are around us. Allow us for, allow that our heart would break for those things that break your heart, God. May the things that break your heart break our heart, God. May it be that we fast and mourn, not for the new job we want, that we don't fast and mourn for the money we want, the fast and mourn for the kingdom we want, fast and mourn for the, the things that we want. May we fast and mourn for the people who are yours. May we fast and mourn for the widow who is in her suffering. May we fast and mourn for the orphan who doesn't know of the love of a father. May we fast and mourn for those people who are in addiction. May we fast and mourn for the things outside of us, God, because you know where we are going to be at the end of this time, but we don't know where they're going to be, God. May our heart break for those things that break your heart, God. May we never be so comfortable in the throne room that we can't go and throw ourselves into the battlefield and the war zone of people who need you the most. Give us the spirit of courage and of boldness. We rebuke the spirit of fear of man that might tell us all the reasons why our apathy is a good choice. And instead, Lord, may you put inside of us a fire that will burn us up if we don't let it out, God. May people know about the love and salvation that comes through your son, Jesus, because of the people who don't see people as inconveniences, but they see them as lost sheep for whom you left the 99 to capture the one. We thank you for what you're doing in us, through us, and for us. We give you this day. We give you this week. May you bless each one of those people here today as they go out. May we be more like you each and every day. We give you the glory, the honor, the praise. And everybody said, amen. God loves you and so do we. If you want prayer, we're going to be here. If not, we hope you have an amazing week. You're very dismissed. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the After 9 Show. For those of us just joining right now, I encourage you to go back and re wait, rewind. Is that the term? Yes. Rewind the message and take a listen, and then come back over here and talk to me and my good buddy, Pastor Luke LaBeouf. And we're going to be talking about things that we got out of the message today, maybe some things that stood out to us. And the point of the After 9 Show is so that you can feel, if you're watching via live stream right now, you can feel like you were here and you can, you know, encourage yourself and talk to people that like you. I like you. I don't know you, but I like you. <laughs> anyway, so I really enjoyed today's message, but I have someone with a really cool shirt on that may have a little bit more, uh, uh, the red one might have a little bit more meaty things to say. So let's see what he has to say. But um, something that I really thought was quite comical, you can come on in faster, Luke. I was just uh, about to say how funny the chaos of today was with the, I don't know if the stream actually even noticed because um, we were good on live stream, I think, but we noticed here, we didn't have sound, we didn't have this and that, but you know what? God was here. There's an old saying. Yes. You got to go with the flow. Yeah. I love that saying. And we did today. In media, uh, big boss Larry always says, don't major on the minor. That's it. Right? So Pastor Luke, what did you, what were the highlights for you today in service? After going through all the disruptions with- Yes, the chaos. <laughs> the message that came forward today right. was so challenging. Yeah. We need to be challenging. Yes. And Nehemiah uh, answered the call on his life. Yeah. And I got challenged by the word of God this day, mm -hmm. 
And I had to ask myself, uh, as I have I really answered the call from uh, walking out of uh, a life of apathy okay. to a life of empathy? Yeah. Having empathy like Nehemiah had for God's people. Yeah. He took on God's yeah. Uh, yeah. purpose. Yeah. Uh, and he left a life of luxury behind and he went in, didn't know what to expect. Yeah. But boy, you look at our lives yeah. sometimes. You have to ask yourself, you have to be challenged. And Pastor Mike challenged us today. He did. Yeah. To, to I, look within. Yeah, exactly. And I, I really like the three points he had today was, well, let me see if I can remember number three. But number one was what Pastor Luke said, apathy or empathy. And then number two was God. Uh, God's issue became Nehemiah's issue. I can't remember number three. I'm sorry. But no, shoot. Oops. But anyways, let's go to God's issue became uh, Nehemiah's. Ne yeah, God's issue became Nehemiah's that's issue. That's right. And that's something that we all stand on for, even in our church and the things that we're doing. Um, how many people know that this church couldn't, couldn't run on a Sunday or even exist if there weren't people that took personal responsibility for what we're doing here, right? And this was something that we believe in our hearts that like this was an like a call of God, right? So we had this moment where we had to take on this, That's not an it. issue, but you know, this thing stand in line with what God was saying. So I was really encouraged by that, that, um, you know, I have always said like with people in my life and even with myself that I want to be someone that's uh, so hungry for the heart of God that my heart is uh, very similar to his, right? Like it, it, you see a similarity, right? But um, I'm really, I'm really, I was really challenged as well, Pastor Luke. Amen. And I think it's good for us to take a moment and just, you know, I think it's easy. It's really easy. Even like we're going through this with youth is I said, okay, we're talking about purpose. And I want you to take four things this week that, that you can um, talk about in your life that God did for you. And it's hard to, you know, when you're in that mode of selfishness, you can't think about being grateful, it's hard. But when you change your mindset to be grateful for what God's done for you, it opens up this giant world of things that you need to That's be doing right. for other people, right? What I feel really helps yeah. is to focus on the cross yeah. and truly understand what did he do for me? Yeah, exactly. When you're faced with a need yeah. that you can meet, yeah. but we're so apathetic at times, Yeah. Were we, and we're called to be like Jesus. Mm -hmm. yep. Jesus seeing a need, what did he do? He filled he, it. He was moved with compassion. Oh, moved with compassion. <laughs> yeah. You know, with empathy. <laughs> yeah. And he made provision. Yeah. Sometimes it's easier for us to sit on our lazy boy and yeah. put our feet up. Do nothing. And do nothing. Watch the birds. I, I like what Pastor Michael said too. I think that was kind of a, a little bit of a slap on the wrist how he said, uh, apathy is a luxury that only, what does he say, atheists have? Mm -hmm. Because you eat, live, eat, drink, and, and be merry, and then tomorrow we all die, right? That's but right. we don't have that luxury. That's right. Especially since we see, like what Pastor Michael said, we see how much, like, Jesus didn't take an apathetic mindset towards us. If he was apathetic, we would not have an eternity with him right That's exactly right. so um yeah it's definitely humbling to say like oh if you want to choose to be apathetic towards a situation it's like 
well, what about what Jesus Christ did for you? Amen. You know, it's really convicting, but in an in, in a attitude of love, like, you know, everything we say and all these things we do, like Pastor Michael delivered it really well today, but we challenge you because we want you to grow. We want uh, the body to grow and we want a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ because we can't get that if we just like we live an apathetic life, you know? We want to make a difference. Exactly. And that's what we're called to do. Yes. You know, uh, 30 years ago, I answered the call. Yep. I left my cushy job <laughs> yep. to come and follow him. Yep. I didn't know what it all entailed, just yep. like Nehemiah. Exactly. He didn't have a clue what he was going to face yep. in rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. Yep. But I'm glad that I answered the call. And even though I picked up my cross to follow him, there's still areas in my life that I feel yeah. um, I'd like more compassion. Yeah. I'd Me like too. to be a little bit more empathy towards the needs that are around yeah. us yeah. rather than shun a blind eye. Yeah. Because I believe that's what Jesus would do. Yeah, me too. Amen. Yeah. And just one more thing before we wrap up. I really liked um, the point about how we look back in the script with the Dead Sea Scrolls and Isaiah and how God had called King Cyrus by name. Mm -hmm. That was like when my brother and I were talking about this, I always get like a sneak peek of the lesson. So we were talking about it earlier, like, like uh, this week. And he said that and like, Ooh, me and Pastor Sherry were standing there and was like, oh, that's so cool. Like people were like historians were saying, oh, Daniel must have like imposed Cyrus's name in order to get what he wanted. But no, it was never that way. It was that God had called Isaac or sorry, Cyrus. King Cyrus to come and to be this uh, middleman to fix all of these problems, to let the people go, you know, yeah. like and King Cyrus was faithful and he did the things that he was called because he was anointed for that exact moment, which was like. Um, I w it's just so cool. Amen. I love how the Bible comes full circle with stuff like that. And just really encouraging to know that if God would plan to call King Cyrus by name hundreds of years before that moment even happened, how he has a plan for you and he's called you by name. Your name might not be in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but it doesn't mean that it's not on the heart of God. That's right. I'm looking forward to next week oh, yeah. to see what Nehemiah had to face yep. and how God's seen him through. Yep. And how he was moved, he took on God's cares yes. to fulfill his journey yeah. and to fulfill what God had called him to do is to rebuild the wall. Yeah. And uh, it was a far, I don't know, sometimes we wonder if we knew ahead of time yeah. how big the task would be or what oh. we'd have to face. Yeah. But... We have the promise of God. That's right. That he would be there with us. Yep. And God was with Nehemiah. Yep. And he got the job done. He did. He got the job done. he answered the call. Yeah. And I believe there's people out there that God is calling you. Yes. And uh, all we have to do is trust him. Yep. You heard it here first. <laughs> well, we hope you guys have the best day of your life. I'm Sarah, and this is Pastor Luke LaBeouf. And if you didn't catch today's message and you're just tuning in now, I really encourage you, go watch it. Yes. You're going to be blessed and convicted and changed and all the good stuff. So we'll see you tomorrow at 630 at the Lighthouse. We hope you have the best day of your life. <laughs>